In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Real. It's in the same studio. Uh, similar kind of idea. We get some people in the room, try to figure some things out. Uh, we just had uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist. Very cool dude. We've had Tim Ferriss here from the 4-Hour Everything. And uh, we just had an actual rock star in here last week. His name is Rao Reynolds from this band, Enter Shikari. And uh, I felt like saying to him, you're a rock star. But I think he would have been like, yeah, whatever. So, <laughs> but he was like the nicest guy, even though when he gets on stage, he's like screaming and things like that. So uh, if you want to check that out, that's at LondonReal.tv. But we're here today to talk about tech. My co-host is Colin Pyle, uh, entrepreneur. You've got a couple things going on. You've got Lingos. You've got coffee company Crew Cafe. Talk to me. Yeah, things are going, uh, things are going bonkers, but all good. Uh, the Lingos, uh, we got a 20-pound voucher, so... Silicon or oh, yeah. lingos.co still going on with that. yeah yeah so go get a free lesson and uh, crew cafe is yeah we're going nuts I'm off to Italy in about two weeks to develop four more blends for the the coffee company so uh, yeah we've ton of new customers great feedback and uh, yeah just growing like crazy so it's good Awesome, man. I just want to uh, thank our sponsor, which is TaskRabbit. Uh, usually you know they're the online marketplace where you can outsource like small jobs and tasks to your community. They just got to London like four or five months ago, and uh, they do like a lot of our back end for Silicon Reel. They slice our videos up, and uh, they'll do anything. You can get them to like uh, clean your house or fix your car or uh, whatever, and uh, we're pretty happy with them, right? It's kind it's of amazing, like yeah. it's temporary workforce that you can get like fast. Yeah, and super high quality. <laughs> I've been blown away by sort of the level and, and the reliability and efficiency that that we've gotten from them so it's been it's been really good yeah so welcome them to the community it's taskrabbit.co.uk use the code real 25 free 25 pounds no brainer no brainer okay here we go our guest today is Jonathan Raz Fridman who is the co-founder of Kano which is the first computer that anyone anywhere can make it's a uh, computer and coding kit for all ages, all over the world. Uh, you guys pretty much famously raised, uh, I think, over a million and a half dollars in crowdfunding on Kickstarter, I think, in January. Uh, you had over 13,000 people mm-hmm. subscribe to that campaign. Um, I think your kit retails for about $129, and you're shipping in July. Uh, let me just finish out your intro. And uh, You were just named one of the Silicon 60, which is like the 60 people in tech in London. Um, how come, I don't know, why weren't we on that list? I'm really not that important, I guess. Really? <laughs> we, we got to work on that for next year. I got to get there. Um, It was cool because my uh, my girlfriend was reading through it. She's like, a lot of these people have been on Silicon Real. And I'm like, and that guy is on tomorrow. (laughs) So uh, um, I'd rather have the people on the list on our show rather than us on the list and no one on the show. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Anyways, Jonathan, welcome to Silicon Real. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's so good to have you here. You know, on your Twitter, it says uh, you took a flight from Tel Aviv to London uh, to uh, start Kano. And uh, that's pretty crazy. I think you came 16 months ago, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could tell us about the phone call you got that made you decide to pretty much flip your life 180 degrees, move countries, and uh, come into this crazy community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it was actually a phone call. So I was back then talking to uh, Saul Klein, who became my co-founder, one of my two co-founders in Cano. And we are kind of after a couple of months of talking about um, why education is changing and why it's interesting, looking at existing platforms like um, open source software. And then we looked at the Raspberry Pi, which kind of took off uh, and in a matter of six months sold 500,000 units of essentially a single board computer uh, at $35 that anyone can buy off the shelf and, and, and do something with it. Um, and basically, we're kind of talking on the phone and, and the, the idea was, well, let's, let's meet up in London after a couple of weeks of, of spinning around ideas on a, on a, on a Google Doc. Um, let's throw up to London for a full day, see together, um, you, me, and, and Alex, uh, who is the, the second co-founder, and, and talk about what do we want to do and why, and why it's interesting. And at that same week, I was actually on a reserve duty in Israel. It was a time where um, 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 uh, south of Israel was, was, was being bombed by uh, missiles from Gaza. 
um, and I was on a reserve duty, uh, you know, so I'm, I was like with uniforms and everything and we were talking in the evening. I'm like, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's possible. Like I'm still in reserve duty that we scheduled to like to meet in London on Thursday, but somehow kind of in between the end of the, the incidents from Ga- with Gaza and, and kind of the plans of coming here for um, 24 hours, essentially, I ended up coming. I took a flight. Uh, we met for a full day um, in London, the three of us. And by the end of the meeting, after about 12 hours of talking about what do we want to do and, and kind of learning more about each other's visions, we decided to basically launch this journey. Um, I came back to Israel. This, we're talking about like mid-November. And after two months, I, I landed back here and we started the company. What is the Raspberry Pi? Just so we know the beginning of this story. I remember hearing about this years ago yeah. when I was in the city still. So <clears throat> was like, I'm getting a Raspberry Pi for my kid. And I never looked into it. I think uh, Jonathan's got some props here with his hands. So what, what, do, you, what do you got? And what is the Raspberry Pi? So the, the Raspberry Pi is, is a single board um, computer based on Linux that was developed by the Raspberry Pi Foundation in, in Cambridge. It's a great British invention at $35, and you know, anyone can buy it today. You can buy it online. There are a couple of companies that are selling it. Um, what year was that invented, roughly? It was, it was launched in, in uh, February 20, uh, I think April 2012. Okay, so fairly recent. <clears throat> yeah, so about two years ago. Okay. Um, really recent. Yeah, really recent, and they sold until today 2.5 million units of this board. Wow. Can you uh, hold it up? So we can yeah, just sure. see it? That's a mega camera. Okay. So, so that's it, the Raspberry Pi. It, that's the Model B. Okay. Um, Little printed circuit board with some other funny colored pieces on there. <laughs> Capacitors or I don't know. A processor, okay. you know, uh, that basically turns this into something that you can, you can turn into anything you want. So some people turn it into their media server, uh, into their uh, uh, media center or, or a computer server. Um, and you can do basically anything you want. You, you, you program anything you want. It's open source, so you can basically turn it into any type of computer. Some people turn it into a, a supercomputer. Some people operate their garage doors um, and automate it. Um, so, you know, it's something that anyone can buy and, and kind of start making technology. Um, and when we saw the Raspberry Pi, uh, we thought like, wow, this is really, really cool. It's like a really small computer board that we can buy. And what was interesting for us is that at a low cost, and in a pretty powerful um, uh, processor, we can, on top of it, potentially build something that is going to make it um, more accessible to a wider audience, make it more playful, make it turn it into a toolbox that anyone at any age, anywhere, can build on top and make what they want and move from you know, locked, sealed, magical devices like any tablet or iPhone and actually start creating with technology instead of just consuming. And this is how we started the journey. Is this, t- I mean, is the Raspberry Pi marketed at children? And is, is, the, is the Kano marketed at children? Or is it not that simple? Um, I think the distinction between the age group is something that is very blurred. Um, I'm not really aware of kind of the clear, uh, what's the marketing strategy of the, of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. I think a lot of people buying the Raspberry Pi from different age groups, from different places in the world. It can be UK, US, other places as well. Um, for Cano, you know, we're trying to build a computer kit that anyone can buy, any beginner, right? It could be a right. seven-year-old who just want to make, learn, and play with technology and hack into games, push some code into it, start creating. And it can be a 60-year-old in, you know, in South Africa who never had a computer but actually now we give them something that, you know, off the shelf with a great out-of-box experience with an intuitive, simple, and fun operating system that we've created with simple documentation, all the components that they need. Um, they can make their own computer and they can make anything they want with this computer. Um, so it's, it's more about curiosity, beginners, um, creation with technology versus oh, it's just for, for kids or children. So we're trying to make sure that our messaging and our story is driven by this is a powerful toolbox that is fun. You can play with it. You can make technology with it. And it doesn't matter what's your age. Yeah, I guess it's more skill set, less age. Yes. Uh, yeah, like a seven-year-old picks that up and I pick that up, we're probably going to have the same thoughts. Yeah, or, gra- or grandma <laughs> picks that up. Yeah, exactly. similar kind of thought process. So yeah. was, was Raspberry Pi ever, did they ever need to be on board? Or are they just kind of a, an institution that's happy for anybody to use the tech? Is that something you had to license for them? How does that work? 
So the way the, the Raspberry Pi Foundation works, they, they're working um, exclusively with two uh, manufacturers who are actually manufacturing the Raspberry Pi boards. And then anyone can basically buy the board. You can log in today to a, to a website and, and buy this board individually as you want. So they make it, make it accessible to anyone to buy. The question is then, what do you want to create with it? Um, and our relationship, we have a very good relationship with them. You know, we, we, we kind of introduced them from early on, from the beginning of Cano, what's interesting for us and why we're doing this. Uh, and we were happy to, you know, to buy the pies and build on top of it um, a whole new kind of computing experience that is powered by the pie. And we're very proud of that because it's a great British invention and you know, we're a UK company. Um, that is shipping is going to ship to global audience, and, and it's just great to use the Pi as a platform. Can you walk us through your story in the last year? I mean, 2013 was probably the craziest year of your life, or I don't know, maybe not if you're you know, on reserve duty. <laughs> I, I think that's the first, going from reserve duty to boardroom. Yeah, <laughs> in 48 it's, hours. It's a huge whatever. transition. You're building a company from scratch. I know, I think it was a year you guys uh, shipped 200 units before the Kickstarter. I want to come to that later. But mm. what was that 12 months for? Uh, like you, I know you left the Israel tech community and you mm. came to the London one. We'll mm. talk more about that later too. But what was mm. the first 12 months like? A, a real roller coaster um, <clears throat> combined by a personal journey moving from the country that I love, that I was born and raised in, which is Israel. Uh, after you know, 20, 29 years of living there, I moved to a whole new world, right? London, a global city, uh, really a, kind of a, an epicenter of the world, uh, very international, people from all over the world, very big, very exciting very different culture from the one I've been part of in Israel. So there was a lot of kind of personal accommodation that I had to do and still doing. Um, but for me, it's more of, um, you know, it's kind of, I have a sense of mission by coming here to London. Uh, it wasn't like, I want to live in London, so I'm going to move to London. It was, I want to build Canada together with my co-founders and build a great company. And we've decided that London is going to be the place. You know, so I'm just going to be there. I'm just going to go there. We're going to start the company. And, it was um, kind of um, a rolling story. You know, you arrive, okay, you need to work now on an entrepreneur visa. So, you know, this great institution that um, the UK uh, government created, <clears throat> which is the, uh, the entrepreneur visa. So we had, to, we had to kind of work on that, but it was pretty straightforward. You know, three was. months time, I got an entrepreneur visa after we showed all the documents we need. Got a great support from, you know, the UK embassy and the UK TI. Um, that what, kind are, of, what are the details of the entrepreneur visa? Just so some of our audience may not understand. Yeah, it's a, and then uh, it's mm. great to know how yeah. hard it was because yeah. we never know. Mm. So first of all, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal thing, the, the entrepreneur visa. Um, it doesn't exist in the States, right? It doesn't Nothing exist, like I think, it. anywhere in the world. I think maybe in Berlin okay. to some extent because they're also very promotional on getting entrepreneurs to build companies in, in Germany. But basically for me, it was, um, you know, submitting a, an application and the key criteria for getting the entrepreneur visa were that I'm one of the founders of the company. Obviously, it's a UK company. Um, uh, uh, it has a bank account in the UK, so you need to prove that you have a certain amount of investment. It doesn't matter where the investor is from, but you need to show that you have the money from investors in a UK bank account that belongs to the company where you need to be a director. Okay. There was also kind of a four hours English test that I had to do in Israel, which was obviously exciting. <laughs> and um, conversations with the UKTI or kind of the commercial team in the UK embassy in Tel Aviv. And they needed to kind of, kind of uh, let's say, approve the process and the application and, um, and, and kind of um, recommend for, for me to get an entrepreneur visa. So they asked for some um, you know, business plans, prove that there is actually a business happening, so there's like a very, very structured way of getting the entrepreneur visa, which you need to accommodate to. Uh, but if you tick all the boxes, I mean, in three months' time, I got an entrepreneur visa. Is it two years or, it's, uh, or is it tied to it's, the company? It's uh, three and a half years and it's tied to okay. the company I, I, that I started. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever think <clears throat> about um, starting this company in Israel? Did you pitch that originally? Cano? Yeah. No, there was no point of time where that was um, an option. The, the idea was that we want to build a global company from day one. Um, we knew that the Raspberry Pi are based in the UK, in Cambridge. Right. Um, you know, both Sol and Alex at that time were in the UK. Uh, Sol lives here and Alex was doing a master's in Cambridge. 
Um, so the whole idea was that London is the right place at the right time with the right, potentially the right story. Um, so we were very kind of um, firm on it's going to happen in London. And you basically shipped <clears throat> those 200 units before your Kickstarter <clears throat> campaign in January. I think my numbers are roughly right. So that was the entire 2013. You have pretty accurate information, I have yeah, to say. Okay. Uh, I have my sources. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've done, basically, when I moved here, um, you know, me and Alex and Sol, we started to work um, together on, on kind of the first prototype. We said, like, well, we have the pie already, right, off the shelf. So the time to market can be shortened because there is already the, the most, let's say, a critical component in the, in the product that is ready, which is the hardware and the PCB. Were, were there other pie derivatives out there at this point? Or anyone doing anything especially yeah, impressive? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are a couple of others that you know, we heard about. Some of them uh, we had conversation with just to kind of better understand the market. And, and since then, there are a couple of more um, companies and entrepreneurs that are building all kinds of single board computers. There are companies like BeagleBoard that are, you know, has a, a Texas Instrument chip inside that are, you know, getting support from large corporates. So there's many, many others. But you know, the Raspberry Pi had a very distinct story, so they captured all of the attention, and the numbers that they've sold were unmatched to anything else that existed. So at that point of time, we said, well, I mean, the first thing we need to do is to do a prototype. And then we need to take this prototype and do some customer development workshops and show if, and see if anyone likes it. So, you know, we incorporated a company end of January and then we started to work and we worked for three months on doing something very, very simple. We're going to design a simple box, white, with a Canon name on top of it. We're going to put all the components that you need in order to work with the Raspberry Pi. We're going to design a couple of books, just like a Lego book that takes you very simple stages with instructions on how you start to work with the Raspberry Pi, and we're going to start getting uh, feedback from real customers. You mentioned Legos because it was uh, Alex's nephew, or <coughs> Saul Klein's son, seven-year-old, who kind of gave, you, gave Alex the idea or gave you guys the idea. So we came to, to, to Mika, which is Saul's seven-year-old son and Alex's seven-year-old cousin. Market, uh, market research. <laughs> great market research. Uh, and, and we came to him, and we, you know, we, <laughs> we showed him the pie, and... His request was, well, I'd love to work with it, but can you make it as simple and fun as Lego? And so, you know, we saluted and uh, went to do the work. So how many shares does he get for that seven-year-old? Oh, he's a, he's a co-founder. You know, Mika <laughs> yeah. is a, he Mika, looks pretty plugged in. He's Mika a is a co-founder. Yeah, well, he's on the Kickstarter video, you know, yeah, with the books yeah, piling up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's definitely a big inspiration. There are a couple of other Sounds inspiring cool. stories that we learned about throughout the development of the company that you know, hap we'll happily share moving forward. Um, so we've done that, and by the end of April, essentially after three months, we had a, a full working prototype, uh, a very basic one, but very nice and simple, and we went into a primary school, uh, uh, 20 kids at the age of 9 to 11, because we, we thought that if we can make something that is going to be simple enough for a 7, 8, or 9-year-old to do, anyone is going to be able to do that. Um, so we went into this school, King Solomon Academy in, in Marleybone, uh, beautiful school, was very kind to offer us the opportunity. And we did a workshop of about an hour and a half with these kids. Um, you know, Alex was running the, was running the workshop uh, in a very storytelling way and kind of uh, invited the, all the kids to make a computer by themselves. And after the 90 minutes, one of the kids named Khalid, he stood up and asked to say something. And he said that adults treat them like they're incapable because they're young, but today they've made a computer, so they're like super children. <laughs> and that was the first interaction we had with the prototype. So we were like, wow. Empowering. <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> so we decided to make 200 units, 200 prototypes. So Alex was working kind of on the design of, of, of the books and writing the books and making sure that kind of the experience is going to be simple and the, powerful. Because the story is key. I mean, you yeah. said storytelling. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. the design is key. Because yeah. if, if you get that wrong, then no one cares. It's well, like Apple. You get it wrong. Well, that's the power of Lego, right? They, they, they tell a story and they're using booklets in an arrow and everyone are like, why do you need physical yeah. books? We yeah. want books. Well, you would be surprised. It's pretty yeah. powerful. It, People love books. They love kind of the feeling of doing the instruction process. And Lego is more relevant now than ever in terms of how many units they sell a year. Um, you know, I took a flight to China, started to buy components, buy some pies. We bought 200 pies. Right, because you're producing hardware. I don't think yeah. we've had many hardware producers on this show. Like, that says a lot right there. Yeah. But, I mean, you basically, you got to go to China, right? Yeah. Okay. So we went to China also to learn about what's going on and kind of be closer to the place where uh, mass manufacturing on a global scale is happening. Mm -hmm. 
So I went to Shenzhen, met some companies, talked with entrepreneurs. It was phenomenal. It was my first time in China. And uh, you should do a documentary about your year last yeah. year. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happened. But, you know, the interesting thing is that we've, we've done all of that outside of an apartment in London where we, we started to pile up like all the boxes that we've designed. We had a dispatch corner in the living room with like a Royal Mail printer. We do the labels. There were all the components on a shelf in the living room. And we, we would literally you know, stand and assemble the kits, getting orders from our kind of very, very basic website. Um, and we shipped and we sold uh, almost, you know, roughly 200 units of prototypes in, in about um, 90 days, you know, without... You know, paid marketing. It was just still kind of the, the two of us and, and Seoul um, um, together. And, uh, and yeah, and at, at some point we said like, well, we're, we're, we think we know what we want to do next. Um, and the next big thing was about you know, moving to a new office in Shoreditch, where we're still at um, since last June, uh, starting to build a team. So we've hired our first engineer. And at that point of time, we decided to really start working on what we envisioned earlier as the product that we want to ship to you know, thousands of people. Um, and then the next step was like, okay, so we're getting ready. How do we tell the story to a broader audience? Because we had like almost 200 alpha customers, right? People that got the product. Are those in UK-based or <clears throat> Europe-based? Well it was Europe, Israel. It was people we know, people okay. who heard about us, people who were looking for something about Raspberry Pi. So they found our website, mm-hmm. uh, people from the US, um, uh, all kinds of South Africa, a kind of very diverse uh, geographic distribution for a company with like literally no operation almost. Um, and at that point of time, we decided also that Kickstarter would probably be the right fit for us in terms of how do we want to introduce the product and build our, build our first community. Because um, that's not obvious. I mean, in retrospect, it's obvious. But, you know, uh, I mean, how many people on this show have done Kickstarters? It was like Tribe Sports and, yeah. a, and you yeah. and a few others. But, I mean, most people might think, okay, let's go raise a round and let's get the manufacturing and everything. I was wondering you just talk about Kickstarter because I, I still don't even know how to explain what Kickstarter <laughs> is. It's like part marketing, part advertising, part investing pre-sales pre-sales and it's also like it's a great uh, testament to future investors because you have a community I mean it's all these weird things into one indeed it is and it it really depends on what are you trying to achieve with your Kickstarter campaign and there is a, a huge difference between doing a product design project or doing a film or an art project or anything else uh, because in a film, the type of supporters you would gather around you, it's going to be a very different community than a community that, you know, that wants the product that you want to create. So the main thing at the beginning is to identify who do you envision coming to your Kickstarter campaign and how do you build and prepare the campaign in a way that you're going to be able, in a press of a button, to get to all of your um, audience you know, the influencers. Um, and for us, the decision to do a Kickstarter was about, mainly about to show that people care about what we want to create, essentially building our first tribe. And on top of that, showing that there is real interest in the product that obviously, because it's a product-related project, will drive um, a, a pre, pre-orders from, from the Kickstarter. Um, and the money basically serves as working capital. This is money that is not about an investment. You don't, go and, you don't take the money and go and start hiring people for that. This is money that you, you got from backers in order to manufacture the product to ship them. Uh, and in some cases, some projects, they don't, even do, they don't even do any margin on what they, got, what they get from Kickstarter, which is fine because that's not the purpose. Mm. Um, so for us, it was about building our tribe, telling the story for the first time, about what is Cano, what are we trying to do, what is the vision of the company, who are the people that are behind it, uh, and where do we want to go, and hopefully inspire uh, people to come and support us. And the idea was, by asking $100,000 as a funding goal, it was, well, let's build a certain tribe, a bigger than 200 people, and let's make another 1,000 units, roughly, and show that there is a bigger audience that is interested about what we want to do. Um, and we, we had a very, very diligent and serious preparation for the Kickstarter campaign of around 30 to 45 days. You know, we had 
spreadsheets with people that we thought are influencers with Twitter handles and their emails and who are the journalists that we think are going to be interested. We got a lot of support from our, you know, kind of the uh, people around, around Cano, you know, the investors, the advisors that we already had because at that point of time we had a kind of a small seed round in order to, to build the initial team uh, aside of me, Alex, and Sol. And we ended up after, after 18 hours getting to the funding goal of $100,000 and uh, half a million dollars after four days and, and $1.5 million after 30 days with almost 14,000 backers from 86 countries. <laughs> it was just, it was just, a, it's it, be was, one of the, it was just a beautiful moment. One of their best success stories. I think uh, we would like to, to yeah. think so. And in terms of numbers, you know, we are uh, the, the highest, uh, the biggest crowdfunded project that came from the UK, even though we did a US Kickstarter, but we are a UK company. Yeah. Um, we are today, I think, number five in product design all time. Number 31, I think, all time in Kickstarter out of half a million. <clears throat> and number one um, in, uh, in the in category that is related to learning. Um, so and those those numbers are. I mean, it seems like you could go out the next day and raise twenty million just on those numbers, like eighty six countries, thirteen thousand. I mean, like that's, yeah, it's like an amazing customer list. Like right you don't even need a business plan or a pitch book. You just need like those three three lines and be like, okay, there's there's <laughs> demand here for my product. There is definitely initial demand. Right. We identify that there is uh, a lot of hunger, you know, from people around the world to what we're potentially trying to, to build. And but you guys crafted the campaign. You, 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 you contacted the media early. You got everybody ready around this date. It, it wasn't just a let's just see what happens. And your, you, your, video, yeah. your video feels really homegrown, but I'm sure you thought long and hard about how you wanted to, 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 to show your product to the world. It's, um, the Kickstarter happened about 11 months after we started the company. So the messaging, the vision, the, the, kind of the why we do it was already very strong what was very challenging and, imp- and crucial to do in order to have a very successful campaign was to connect the pieces. Uh, and the video is a great place to do that, but also very challenging. It needs to be, you know, it needs to be short. It needs to be precise. It needs to talk to the audiences that you care about. And one of the amazing things, I don't know the numbers, but one of the great things we've, we've seen is that we had a lot of backers that were first-timers on Kickstarter. Hmm. That was for us a great, a great, great win. And that to came, be able to drive people to use Kickstarter for the first time. Right, and that came from us. your other media contacts. <clears throat> I mean, if, you, if that's the first time on Kickstarter, obviously your audience <clears throat> isn't coming from Kickstarter. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we didn't. Our only audience were 200 people that bought the alpha versions. That, that was our audience. <clears throat> so uh, you raised the one and a half. Uh, I guess things were going pretty crazy. Um, did, you, did you know when it would stop? I mean, at one point when you got to a million, are you like, oh my gosh, Sorry. <laughs> what, if, what if I got myself into? <laughs> it's a it's a very it's a it's a, it's a weird feeling because you don't really know what to expect when you launch the campaign. You, deep inside of you, you feel there is something interesting that we're building, but you can't really sit around and say, ah, "We're gonna cross the million for sure." You know, we would probably be satisfied and quite happy with two hundred, two hundred and fifty. Even just reaching the goal is great because. It's, it's, it's a small victory. To cross the million was absolutely remarkable moment for us. It was, wow, there is true belief uh, from more people that, than, than we anticipated from so many countries. And finishing at 1.5 was just a beautiful moment. For us, it was less 1.5 million. For us, it was it's almost 14,000 people who never heard about us, never heard about the company, and they're supporting us with a product they didn't even see. Um, that was the most uh, impressive feeling to have. And this is like the hidden value of Kickstarter. Now that person is probably going to be a fan <laughs> for life. They're going to tell all their friends about it. They're going to show people the, the Kano that they bought on the Kickstarter campaign right. that raised on it. I mean, Jesus, the press from that. I'm guessing is just exponential. Um, yes, and, and I think what you said, by the way, about the, the people who supported us, you know, the backers, this is where the focus at the moment lies from our perspective. You know, we have almost 14,000 people who are waiting eagerly to get a product and a promise that is big. If you go to our Kickstarter campaign, you know, we're, it's a, it's a, we're promising a very exciting, exciting experience, and we're working really hard on delivering on-time on quality, 
and on the promise of the experience that we've kind of you know, marketed on the Kickstarter campaign. And it's a great challenge and it requires a lot of kind of iterating that this is what it's important now for the company. And like any startup and any company in the world, you know, iterating focus and being radically more focused every single day, it's not a trivial thing to do. Right. Especially as you grow also with the team. I just want to know what it was like, say, February 15th, <clears throat> all the dust and the adrenaline settles, and then you walk back in and you're like, fuck, we have 14,000 you know, people to satisfy by July, and I got to go back to China and all that stuff. What is like the 2.0 phase like for you? The hangover. Well, first of all, <laughs> the Kickstarter hangover. <laughs> well, first, yeah, it's a Kickstarter hangover to some extent. But first of all, after, <clears throat> after Christmas, it, it's a weird feeling for me personally as an Israeli because we don't have Christmas vacation in Israel. I mean, it's not a, it's not a kind of an official thing. Uh, so the notion of like there's like 10 to 15 days that um, after the Kickstarter, we had no activity basically. Uh, it was kind of a pretty weird feeling. It was like, a, you know, we're so up. And then there is kind of silent, but there is a global silent. Everyone right. are vacating. You can't um, do anything. Yeah, yeah you can't right. do anything. And like you're so eager to do. But I mean, I just had to accept it and it was perfectly fine. Coming back, there was definitely a feeling of there, there was a lot happening. And, and we need to kind of make sure that we land back and take everything into the right proportions and, remember, uh, and remembering why we're here and why we're doing this. So that was the, the main challenge once we got back as a team. And obviously, there are a couple of people that we needed to add and, and understand where we're going. And, um, and, and you know, obviously, there was traction of opportunities, people from all over the world approaching us. Oh, well, we can do this together. We can do that together. Uh, you know, so the best thing you can do is just put it in a folder, which is someday, maybe, uh, and, and keep being focused on what's important. And if you, there were like two or three lessons that you learned in the last three months, what, what would those be? You know, something like, you know, keep it simple. You know, mm -hmm. don't do all these, you know, these co-branding <clears throat> pieces. But what, you know, what have you learned in the last three months? Hmm. Or say that you were giving advice to someone who just raised, you know, a million on Kickstarter yeah. for a piece of hardware. What would you tell them to do and not to do? Um, keep everything in the right proportions. Essentially, you know, don't let the hype too much go above your head. Um, that, that's probably number one. Number two, um, make sure that whatever happened with your Kickstarter doesn't affect um, negatively on the focus of the company and what was the focus of the company when you started and what do you want to actually create. Um, and three, maybe the most important um, is to make sure that the why you're doing it is the same why. Right, that's probably the hardest part. Yeah. It's almost like when a rock star gets <clears throat> famous. Like, why did you want to do this in the first place? Right. Did you want to create and get your message and get your music, or did you just want to party all night? There are many <laughs> articles now with 20 years for Kurt Cobain, um, right. suicide, where right. no one seemed to know exactly what was happening and what was the motivations. Did he want to be famous? Did he not want to be did he, did he kill himself because he became famous? Or did he kill himself because he wasn't famous enough? So, I mean, the right motivation is, is something that is crucial, in my view, to, to the success of, 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 of an individual or, or a business. Um, because at the end of the day, there is always a reason to why we do things. The challenge is, once you're succeeding to some extent, is to make sure that the why always goes across the board um, of, of what you're doing. And... On top of that, you need to make sure that the why is clear to everyone that is involved with the company, any stakeholder, you know, the, the customers, the employees, uh, the founders, investors, advisors, suppliers. So everyone in the ecosystem needs to know what's the why and to make sure that the why is, is consistent, just like a product needs consistency. I'm thinking Jeff Bezos. He's like one of the guys that I say 60 Minutes has done a bunch of interviews him over, over the year. And like his why seems to be like constant. He's like the lowest price for the customer and customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And his, his old office used to be this nasty old office. And he was just like, and it was already after the IPO. And he's just like, no, 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 no. It's all about the price and the customer and the business model. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and he's still there and he's doing a... Uh... Yeah, an unbelievable job with Amazon. It's like unbelievable yeah, success. And it's just um, inspiring to look at entrepreneurs like Bezos and, and try and even learn something small from them.
So will your units be delivered by July? And what happens the rest of the year for, for Kano? <laughs> so at the moment, we're... Answering customer service emails. We're very, very focused on, <laughs> on building a DNA and a culture that, you know, it's about kind of, you know, delivering on the promise of, of what we did in the Kickstarter, creating the wow effect on, on anything, the product, the way we communicate with our customers. Um, that's, that's number one. Number two, making sure that uh, we're building um, a customer-oriented company, you know, that customers are the most important thing. And if the customers are happy, it means we're doing something good as a team, as a company, that everyone around the company is, is doing a great job in helping us to delight the customers. Um, and this is at the moment the core focus of the company. Um, everything else that will happen after that is going to be driven by how much we succeed with these targets. And you don't want to think too much about July because like, that's, that's one customer cycle, but you want to have many, many more customer cycles. And you want to, you know, it's, I guess, ideally, you don't want to stop at the Kickstarter, obviously. I mean, you want to sell 10 times those, that minute of units. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to build. You've been having pre-sales, I guess, on your website now? I yeah. So after so, a couple of weeks after the Kickstarter, right. we enabled pre-orders on our website. And, you know, it's, it's been going on on a, on a daily basis, basically. Yeah. How, so how has that business been post post Kickstarter end? I mean, not numbers, but just has it mm. still been a steady pace or do you find that you have to constantly still be out there to let people know you guys are doing what you're doing? Um, we're not pushing too, too much. So for, for instance, we're trying to, um, to create content around our, our company, around our culture, around our, our creation, uh, communicate to the backers constantly, telling them where we are, what we do, um, support the community. There's a very large Raspberry Pi community Right? There's 2.5 million Raspberry Pis out there in the world. There's a lot of creations, a lot of creativity, a lot of people. And we're trying to build relationship with all of them, you know, with, with, with parents, with kids, with teachers, with makers, with people that are just curious and love what we do. So we're focusing a lot about that and telling stories and sharing content through the different channels online. Um, and obviously it kind of generates more you know more traffic to to our website um by telling the story and, and, and again what are we doing why are we doing this um and we're gearing up towards the time where we're actually going to be shipping the product um so it's an intersection of working kind of on the operational side of getting the product and making sure they're ready and on the other side you know constantly evolving nurturing and building relationship with different audiences What's the difficulty of that task for like in six months to ship that many units, like on one to ten? Is it like seven or is it like eleven? I have no idea. It's because uh, you look at that thing and you're like, oh, just order a bunch from Raspberry Pi, get some keyboards, put it in a box. I mean, like, I'm guessing it's not that simple. But how hard is it? Is a lot it's of it done offsite? So your China manufacturers are they actually putting together the whole thing mm-hmm. and then sending you the finished product? So or? first of all, there's several components on the product that are bespoke. Um, We've, we've designed uh, on top of, um, of Linux Debian, so we took Raspbian, which was a kind of an existing OS for the Raspberry Pi, and on top of that, we've built our own operating system, which we're kind of you know, privileged to have these giants building beautiful stuff like the Raspberry Pi, like these OS, and, and build on top of it something that we want to introduce to our audience and customers. Uh, you know, we, we've designed a whole new keyboard that we're going to introduce that people are, want, want to buy just individually as a keyboard. Um, accessories, the packaging... There's a lot, there was a lot of product development that went on for, for, for about a year uh, until you being able to, to start production. And, you know, you have tooling, you, have, uh, you, you need to align everything. There is consistence of design. Um, yeah, it's, I would wanna... say it's pretty, it's pretty a lot of stuff once you, do, once you develop software, web, content, uh, packaging, and hardware by yourself. And you need to assemble and manufacture and work with suppliers. Yeah, so I would say it's a very it's a it's a pretty challenging task for uh, any company, especially an early stage startup. So ten or eleven. I would, I would say ten is fair. Okay, and the weird thing you don't have like a soft launch really because like it's July and you got to send all the products and like you yeah. can't be like, well, let's try sending out fifty or hundred or two hundred. I mean, we're gonna ship a thousand. Uh, there is a target of shipping a thousand to our early birds, mm. early okay. bird backers from Kickstarter. So get there, uh, uh, potentially are gonna get the product. A month before everyone else. Wow, more, yeah, so more for one thousand. More deadline pressure, <laughs> <laughs> and that should happen hopefully by end of June. This is the target. We're working very hard to meet 
the target and kind of you know meet the expectations of people. You know, the one question I had when I was learning about this company is I was thinking, you know, it's such an interesting idea and a cool uh, concept. But if I was an investor, I'm like, okay, what's happening five years from now? What are you going to deliver? Are you going to deliver, you know, like a buildable, you know, big computer or, you know, how does your product evolve? It's a, it's a great question. One, one, one that we are being asked and asking ourselves. It's very early. We have, you know, we have dreams and desires. And obviously, again, there is a, a, a really strong why. Uh, when, when one asks, what are we trying to do as a company? Yeah. The company can evolve in, in, in different directions. Uh, the directions are going to be determined by what's going to happen uh, in, in the next six months, the next 12 months. Um, you know, we always try and shoot beyond the stars. But at the end of the day, we want to build a company that will build experiences and tools for a new creative generation. What exactly going to be the tools that might differ over time? But this is where we're going. This is where we want to be. Because you could say you're an education company. You're not necessarily a hardware company, right? I would probably say these days that we're trying to, to live in the intersection of, um, of hardware, software, um, learning, and, and, and entertainment. Um, we don't position ourselves as, as one that is in specifically in any of, the, of these four. We feel that we're creating an experience rather than a specific product that sits in a specific market segment um it's it's an opportunity but also it's a risk um because people need to understand what exactly are you providing them but i think we have kind of the confidence and we're trying to work really hard in making sure that we're providing something that on the one hand is clear and at the same time it's flexible so you can make many many things with it for instance you you make a computer and then with this computer you make more things you build things Um, so so that's part of where we want to be moving forward. Where's the competition sit in this, out of curiosity? I know there's quite a few people building cheap laptops mm. for developing nations and stuff, but I don't mm. think they're the same as you and that mm. it's actually you make it yourself. So, Again, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great question, uh, and I think it's uh, something that is very driven by... A lot of people think on competition as, uh, in different terms. My, my view would be that competition is all around us, right? Because if there was no competition, you wouldn't have place. Uh, it means there is no market, no one wants to buy, and um, basically the category is irrelevant to, to the world. And if you look at the, the different audiences that are kind of customers or potential customers, you know, a competition can be uh, about time and money. So you know, a Lego can be a competition, uh, an iPad game, um, uh, uh, different other kind of DIY kits. Um, it could be regular computers. So everything that takes attention and uh, uh, time and, and resources basically means that we are competing with many, 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 many offerings because we're not living in a vacuum. Um, and I think it just kind of reiterates the challenge of in a world of abundance of experiences and devices where, where oh, again, we have like really beautiful consumption machines that everyone really wants to own. They don't need it, but they really want to own. Um, it's, it's very challenging to create something that is desirable, that people eager to have. Um, but it's a great challenge to have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Sully Breaks, the uh, spoken word artist who's been on London Real a few times, he's co-hosted with me for some, some cool guests. I know he's a, a big fan of you guys, and I know he, he does videos and talks about your product, and he has his uh, Around the World in 80-Day trip, and I know he went uh, through Africa to go down there, and I know you guys followed him down to one of the countries and did a video mm. like about Africa, and I was just wondering, uh, are, you guys do target a bunch of African countries for potential people to have condos, and I was wondering if that was a conscious effort you guys made uh, early on. One of the, the components that, um, let's say, <laughs> assembled the why of why we started is about building something that anyone, anywhere can make. And when, really when we started, we saw a video on YouTube about um, a kid named Calvin from, from Sierra Leone. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's basically a story of a, of a 16-year-old kid from Sierra Leone that from the age of 11 taught himself by uh, kind of collecting electronic pieces from, from trash bins in his village, he taught himself to create, to create battery packs and radio because he didn't have that. And he lives in a village where six days a week there is no electricity. Um, 
So it came from a place of necessity, but for us, the Kelvin model exists all over the world because it's about creation, it's about experimentation. It can come from a necessity, it can come from curiosity, but at the end of the day, we believe that you know, we, are, we, we have the power of creation and not just of consumption, and especially in a world where technology advances so rapidly, it's very tempting to kind of let go and let the machine take over while we don't understand how the machine works. So for us, this is an opportunity to build something that is going to be relevant for a 16-year-old in Lagos, as much as for an 8-year-old in London, as much as for a 12-year-old in East LA, as much as for uh, a 65-year-old in Zurich. So that's a critical component. I guess you can even understand your market better by making it for a product that someone in Ghana or Sierra Leone can open up and build just like anyone else, I guess. Yes, and I think the, the, one of the drivers and, and motivations for, for us to, to build this company is about tapping into what, what we refer to today as a majority world, right? Uh, it's not about developed world versus uh, developing world. You, know, you can find developing world in developed world. If you go to East Palo Alto, this is not the other Palo Alto. This is majority world. These are people you know, with no access to, to tools, sometimes with no access to education, uh, even in the UK it exists. So it's not Lagos versus London. It's majority world that can be in the West, it can be in the East, it can be in the North, it can be in the South. It's about the people. It's not about the economy. And these people, you know, we want to tap wherever they are. They can be in India, where 95% of the people in India do not have a computer. Maybe they have a mobile phone, but they do not have a computer that they can, that they can create with, that they can work with. Um, and China. And so I think this, the, the notion of people want to make, learn, and play, it's, a, it's something that goes across the board, we believe, in, in, in many, many countries and not just West versus East. And we want to build a company. And again, I think in that respect, London is a great city to build a company like Cano because it's the most international city. You want to build a global company where you go outside of the street, go to the tube, you're, you're in a global village. We are today um, uh, 17 people from nine different countries. Everyone sitting in the same office in London. It would probably be very hard for it to happen in any other city in the world. Yeah, and you're a one-way flight to Africa, Brazil, Asia, yeah. America, everywhere. So, yeah. You know, it would be a shame to have you here and not talk a bit about Israel startup, um, since that's where you're from. Um, we, it's come up, you know, here and there on a bunch of different episodes. We had well, Garrett Davies from AdBrain, who had just spent uh, Christmas or uh, the holidays in Tel Aviv. And uh, I'm gonna, I think I might go to Tel Aviv, by the way, next year. He was, like, yeah. on the beach in January, having a great old time. And... Uh, I think it's some crazy number like isn't it the largest number of startups on NASDAQ come from Israel or there are some numbers I've heard that are mm. crazy I was wondering if you could tell us what's the startup scene like there mm. and how the community compares to a place like Silicon Valley or the roundabout here so Tel Aviv is a very vibrant startup community um, where entrepreneurship is something that you see all around you you see people in coffee places. You see people sitting in offices, co-working spaces, sitting next to investors, uh, working among themselves. It seems that there is um, um, this desire to build, create, uh, and you know, uh, ship new products and companies to the world. And so, you know, some of the success, biggest success stories that came from Israel uh, in the last few years were, were very exciting companies like Waze that were sold, was sold to Google uh, for a billion dollar, uh, PrimeSense that was sold to, to Apple, PrimeSense did the, uh, the technology behind the Kinect for Microsoft. Uh, and the combination of being a, a, a society that uh, all the time is kind of very, very on spot because of the kind of political situation in the area makes people feel like, you know, they really want to do something meaningful and, and do something with their lives. And, and, you know, if you couple that with um, the experiences that we gain at a very early age from uh, serving in the military, uh, especially if you're in, an, in a technology unit, um, and then the fact that this is a small country where if you want to build something, you have to look outside to the world and look at, at, at kind of at the global scene versus just like uh, your local economy, which is, 8 million people. If you combine all that together, you get a place that drives 
a lot of innovation, a place where a lot of big corporates, global corporates, buy startups and, 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 and different companies to set their own R&D centers in Israel, where technology and, and R&D is, uh, in terms of percent of GDP, is the highest in the world, more than the U.S., um, with out, aside of the U.S., the largest country with publicly traded companies in Nasdaq is Israel. Okay. So it's only second to the U.S. Um, but when you go to Tel Aviv, it's, <clears throat> you feel this sense of community of entrepreneurs that are really, really passionate about building new products and companies, really passionate about supporting each other. So the sense of community and belonging is very, very strong. And one of the, uh, one of the results of that is entrepreneurs that are succeeding and doing an exit, selling a company or doing an IPO, one of the first things they do, they go back to the, to the community and they, and, they, and, they, uh, and they invest in other entrepreneurs. You know, they do angel investing. So you see success stories that are repeatedly supporting their, the, the community of entrepreneurs. Um, and if you, just, if you walk in Tel Aviv, you see like many people working in a coffee place. Oh, what do we trying this new product, you know, like people working on the weekends. And then you have just a lot of startups that are trying to kind of blossom out of the, out of the, out of the city. And it's not just in Tel Aviv, by the way, but it's in Jerusalem and it's in other cities in Israel. It's in Herzliya. But Tel Aviv is definitely a focal point of, of startup innovation today. And, you know, as Canada, we're lucky to have um, the author of the Startup Nation book, Saul Zinger, uh, on our advisory. And uh, we have a couple of really exciting other people from Israel that are involved with Canada. But I think when you read Startup Nation, you, you, get a, <clears throat> you get a glimpse of all the dots that connected over the last 60 years in Israel that, that brought about this kind of this rush of innovation and young people that are uh, eager to, 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 to make an impact. And what about the London community? Are you feeling the love here? We're kind of new to it. I mean, you, you've been here, what, a, a year and change? Yeah, well, really kind of part of the tech community sort of the last year and a half, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, we and we've been this, doing yeah. this for like 10 months, and yeah. so I've been getting to know it. And compared to the rest of the community, it does feel like everyone is you know, supportive and, and that kind of thing. But how does it feel compared to Israel? I, I think it's, first of all, London is a very big city. Um, and obviously... Um, Shoreditch is one of the startup hubs in, in London, definitely uh, maybe the more vibrant, the more condensed startup environment with uh, several interesting success stories, you know, like Mind Candy um, and, and, and some other guys. Um, and I think I definitely feel the sense of community. There is a lot of goodwill um, from entrepreneurs and investors to connect, to help. There's a lot of co-working spaces, a lot of meetups. You know, we have the Google campus here. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting kind of a couple of minutes from, from here and, and, and being kind of in the heart of shortage. And I definitely feel that there is, it starts to build up and building this sense of belonging to something which is greater than just doing a startup. Um, but it's, it's a process that <clears throat> I think it's going to be interesting to see what it becomes in a few years' time. Um, in respect to Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is definitely uh, the, the sense of belonging and, and community and support is, is embedded in, in, in the people, in the entrepreneurs. And I think that's something that evolved over time because there are also many success stories and inspirations for other entrepreneurs. And I think the next big thing that can happen for the techs in, in London is more and more success stories. You know, companies like Just Eat that did an IPO or King that did an IPO uh, or Mind Candy that are doing great. Um, and other companies that are going to be inspiration both to show that you can do it and B, entrepreneurs that are going to be very successful to serve individually as an inspiration, but also then go back to the community and invest in other entrepreneurs that want to spin off their ideas. And Silicon Valley, do you feel that when you go out there? Do you feel <clears throat> a real sense of community and support? I mean, I guess they've been doing this for 30, 40 years out there. Look, I've, I've, I've actually haven't personally been to Silicon Valley, but I have uh, several good friends that are working out of the valley. Obviously, it's, it's the most intense, biggest startup hub in the world um, with some of the most famous and investors, entrepreneurs, and companies. Um, so I, I think it's probably one of the most exciting places to be in the world, but I haven't personally been there to feel how it differs uh, or kind of similar versus London or, or Tel Aviv. Yeah, me neither. 
Um, you I'm know, dri- driven time by to invite. I'm driven by it on my motorcycle. My, my brother really went to, much time there. Went to Stanford. That's <clears> all I know. But uh, I've never really hung out there. Um, Jonathan, you know, we always ask everyone that comes on the show uh, a couple questions at the end, and I'm going to hit you with them. Um, if you could make a phone call to the 20 year old Jonathan uh, and give that young man a bit of advice, what would you tell him? Learn to code. Did you not know how to code then? No. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not a coder. Okay. What, which is interesting because the three founders of Canada, you know, we're, we're coming from humanities, which you know, made the entire experience that we want to create about the people and not about the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the moment, so you that's know, an I'm, asset for I'm taking lessons at the moment, both on the Cano kit and also on, on Code Academy, and I'm trying to you know, uh, go back to the 20-year-old Jonathan, who is now 30, and, and get him to you know, being able to, on a daily basis, create with technology and not just, and not just consume. And you guys are involved in the Year of Code initiative here in the UK, and, and you guys are all about trying to get young kids to start coding early, right? So we are, we are, we are, we are trying to support various initiatives. One of them is the Year of Code, which is a great initiative that is about, truly about trying to get the message of skills for the 21st century coding, one of them, to the mainstream audience and to parents all over the nation. Uh, another thing that happens, you know, there are going to be a new computing curriculum going into primary schools and schools in the UK coming September. So we're trying to see how we, as a, kind of, as a, as a, as a small startup, can we support this with our product or with the knowledge that we've gained uh, by doing workshops in schools. Um, and I think moving forward, there are going to be more and more companies, small and big, that are going to try and empower um, the younger generations in the UK you know, to become more creative. It can be as entrepreneurs, it can be as programmers. But in our view, it's, it's a, lot, a, lot of it, a lot of it is about the skills um, that you need to develop in order to make yourself relevant for, for a 21st century generation. And if we have time, there's a small story that... Uh, so two weeks ago, I had a chance, a privilege actually, to speak to 250 um, students uh, from different Camden schools, uh, 9 to 11-year-old. And I, I shared with them the story of Cano and you know, why, why we're doing this. And at the end of the, day, at the, end of the presentation... I, I asked him to take three things from, from, my, from my presentation, and it was one, uh, that you can't learn to swim by exercising at, at the beach. Uh, two, that you've got to be able to dare and do things that you don't think you're capable of. Uh, and three, just do it, like the famous <laughs> Nike tagline. And then I said, what's the worst case? And then the next thing I showed them was the slide of the unemployment rates of under 25-year-olds in Europe, which is on average 22%. So I think for a seven, eight, nine-year-old, maybe the question for a Jonathan who is an eight-year-old would be like, you know, looking at this slide and saying, that's your chance to actually do what you <laughs> I want. Say, you're showing unemployment statistics to <laughs> nine-year-olds. We try yeah. to treat anyone as an adult, you know, and, yeah. and I think kids really appreciate that. And did they respond to that? Were they like, uh-oh, time to... I, lo- I, I, tr- I, tr- uh, I, I was trying to find one, one, one kid in the audience that will tell me that this slide is an opportunity and not a worry. Well, not a worry statistic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting money on that kid. That's a, that's a great presentation. Um, just the second part of that question is uh, yes. advice. Uh, what, what's the best advice you've received so far in your career, or even at the uh, at the army in Israel? Or if I, I just... think it's an it's I think it's an advice that is it goes across the board of both professional life and personal is and is you know uh, remember who you are and stay truth to yourself. I just want to touch real quickly on the on the defense force because you said that's part of the reason that keeps the community so tight. I know it's mandatory um, uh, for uh, military mm-hmm. uh, duty for everyone. Yeah. Listeners, so a couple years. Uh, so uh, uh, men do three years and women do two years. And is it the fact that you, you said you were introduced to tech in that? But it must be more than that. It must be because you're pushed to the limits. Mm-hmm. You must uh, form really strong relationships mm-hmm. with everyone. What do you think it is, the, the most important component of that, that, that then spins off into entrepreneurialism? I think it's three, three main things. It's um, accountability. So at the age of 18, 19, 20, you're already accountable for important things like tanks it can be tanks it can be processes it can be other other soldiers um and and actually get a sense of of what what is what account what is accountability at a very young age straight after high school you screw up and people can die (laughs) you screw up and people can die you screw up and and you know you you can you can create uh uh, let's say um uh, uh, diplomacy conflicts 
a lot of things can happen. Sure. I mean, it's a massive organization, which is very important in Israel, obviously. Uh, so, one, so the first one is accountability. Uh, the second one is the network. So if you think about the, the network in Israel between people, it starts in the army, yeah. where you start building your first real adult life network uh, between people that served with you in the same unit. Um, and it's very strong for people who are coming from technology unit, because one of the things that happened after the army, they connect, reconnect and, and building startups together. One of the most uh, biggest success stories in Israel in tech is a company called Checkpoint, which is valued today, I think, at $9, 10 $11 billion. And all the three founders, they served together in the army. Wow. And straight after the army, where they were developing firewall for the army, they were the first firewall technology company to, to come out of Israel, and they became the market leader until today. Okay. It's a company started 15 years ago. Okay. Um, so it was accountability, network? Accountability, network, and the exposure. You find yourself suddenly exposed to amazing things at a very young age. You know, usually people in other parts of the world would only be able to see high-tech uh, you know, military equipment, building, managing, and developing different processes that can influence people's lives only at a really late stage after mm-hmm. a BA, maybe even after a master's. In Israel, you get to taste that at the age of 19. And it shapes how you perceive, what do I do when I don't know something? So already at a very young age, you combine you know, the accountability, the network, and the exposure, and you're starting to put yourself in a place of execution, a place of learning, a place of what do I do when I don't know something? Not to mention, what do I do when I, when I don't know something that I don't know? So there is a lot of pa- parameters that in other parts of the world you only discover later in life, where in Israel you have the opportunity, which is mandatory, to, to get a sense of and, and for quite a lot of time, right? At the minimum, it's three years or two years for women. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, obviously, it takes you to a different place in life where in other countries you find yourself after high school, you know, going to university, having fun, traveling. In Israel, it's different. But I think it's something that we understand and we know from a very young age that there come a time where we're going to join the military. And we, we take it as kind of part of the package of being, of being in Israel. Like a rite of passage. Uh, last part of that question is, um, to the 20-year-old that's listening around the world, in any country, geez, any country you can buy a Kano, which is, you know, Africa, Asia, everywhere, who wants to, you know, uh, grow up and be like an entrepreneur like you, uh, you know, raise a, over a million dollars on Kickstarter, that kind of thing. What advice do you give to them? Like, what are some of the things that they can do so they can later, you know, be part of the tech startup scene? I think the, 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 the number one thing that I would... I would encourage them to do is to be really, really curious. You know, I personally try to be all the time obsessively curious, as if I, I'm still a five-year-old. And that's something about curiosity that is being let go by us when we grow up, you know, because of all kind of educational systems. And, and then you know, we're going to, uh, to study a degree and we're starting to work. So I think this, curi- this natural curiosity that we possess as human beings uh, nurture and, and kind of empower it. Um, you know, moving out of your of your comfort zone. It's very easy to keep doing things you think you know how to do, but the true learning curve happens when you do things you've never done before. And I personally can say, like everything I've done in the last twelve months, I've never done before. Never started that kind of a company. Never built that kind of a size of a team. Never shipped a product to fifteen thousand units. Every day that happens, I find myself in in with a learning curve that I've never done before. Um, so that's number two. And number three, um, make sure that you meet, surround yourself, and um, and being exposed to inspiring people. Good advice. Um, Jonathan, how do people order their own Kano? Um, how can they find out more about you guys? You know, the whole nine. Uh, so uh, first and foremost, uh, do check our website, www.cano.me. Um, there's a lot of information there. Can, it will take you to our forum. And obviously, you can pre-order uh, a kit. We're kind of running out of stock. So okay. if you still want to get the Cano kit by end of July, then please do try and pre-order by end of April. Okay. Um, but I can get one now by July if I go now. If you go now and pre-order, you, you will get it by end of July. That's true. Okay. And 10-year-olds are good for 10-year-olds? It's good for kids of all ages, starting six. 
Six to sixty. Six to six to yeah, maybe ninety. Six to hundred. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, we're out of time, Jonathan. That was super cool. Uh, I was uh, yeah fascinated by everything, the whole story. Um, I definitely want to go to Tel Aviv and check check out things uh, over there. And uh, nothing would make me happier than to see you guys just kill it this year and you know ship so many units and, and change everything. So it's a cool story, right? Amazing story. Thank yeah, you for thank you for inviting me and uh, thank you for sharing the excitement about Cano and uh, it's great to you know to share some, some of what we're doing with kind of the broader London community. You know, everybody sees these companies from the outside and they'll see the website, but like our tagline here is it's about the people and like everybody we have in here reminds us that it's, you know, it's really about the people underneath the website that are making the whole vision to making sure why is important and, uh, you know, to keep that whole thing expanding. So uh, thanks for coming in here and telling us your story and uh, all the best. Thank you. All right, guys, take care. There doesn't seem to be any benefit anymore to, to hiding away what you're trying to do because it's a little bit like you're closing down network effects, you're closing down um, the opportunity for people to help you and support you. And it's not, I don't know, it feels like a very old school way of doing business. I yeah. mean, things are competitive, business is competitive, but it doesn't need to be hyper-aggressively competitive. Unless you've got some really, really smart, clever IP uh, that is completely game-changing. Just tell people what you're up to.